give thanks for their offering and uh, <coughs> and then as I was sitting and praying we're just gonna we're gonna have to communion as to what's gonna end I think it's gonna uh, it's gonna be really good with how the message is ending or how I think it's gonna end so we'll have uh, we'll have uh, uh, communion after the message so let's just pray for the offering also God we thank you and praise you that you're the most generous of all and you have given the world the universe you've given your son and we thank you for that um, Lord thank you that you've made us so we can be generous because you've been generous and so we thank you for that and thank you for for all the people that are generous towards you and uh, I just ask that you would uh, multiply this so we can do all the things that you're asking us to do with no no uh, problems so yeah, ask us to do, help us to be a faithful give us and joyful give us so that um, yeah, there's no hindrance because you own everything. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. And also, please take some flyers because uh, they look nice. So no, uh, so then I don't have to drag them down here every week. Um, you can take your Bibles and go to Matthew 18. We're in Matthew 18. And um, could you just skip to... Yeah, thank you. Um... um So why do we ask questions when we have questions? Because there's going to be a question. That's going to be the first part. Um, so why do we ask questions? Do we sometimes have uh, hidden agendas? Uh, we have this theme also that uh, that sometimes in the Bible, which is really interesting, God asks questions. Why would he ask questions when he knows everything? Um and then we see today, as we since chapter five, we've seen we see Jesus teaching a long sermon, which we call Sermon on the Mount. He probably taught it many times, um, but he taught this to his disciples. What's very interesting from five to eighteen and through the rest of the gospel is that we see Jesus live out his sermon. And we'll see the same today. And he will ask the, the disciples to join him in living this out. He will quote from what he said there, scary quotes, but he will quote from there and he will also ask them to be the opposite of what they are. Today's sermon is going to be about humility. He's always going to give these strong, strong warnings which most modern day people don't really like because often there's this portrayal of Jesus that he is he's a little man who sits and pets sheep and he loves children and that's true I don't think he pets sheep but he is also the one and only true God and he is also the one who's going to judge in the end and he will paint some very very strong pictures now the question is like a little bit about when now we are going to encounter God's word, how will our hearts respond when we're going to be challenged with are you really arrogant and proud? Are you really causing people around you to sin or really you don't care about sin? How will we respond to God's word? So let's pull out the Bible and and go and read together. 
from Matthew 18. So my Matthew writes, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a little child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Humble yourselves. Whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it's necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one to whom to the one f- by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life curable or lame than to with two hands or two feet be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Amen. So right off the bat, or right to begin with, Jesus goes at the hot motivation of why are they asking these questions to the disciples? He confronts them immediately. They are asking, is it us? Are we the great ones? Will we rule with you? On this earth actually, soon, are they seeking power? Are they full of pride? And then if we just stop and, and think about us, what's our prayers motivated by? When we come to Jesus, is there this hidden agenda that we want to be powerful and get what we want so that we are successful? Or do we have an overinflated view of who we are Paul has these words where he says, don't have someone think higher of yourself. Think soberly. Know who you are. It's not a call to think less of yourself. But it's to know who you are.
And Jesus, he asked them immediately to repent. He said, you gotta, you're wrong. You have to repent and humble yourself and become like this little child. Because why? Because if you don't, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So here the disciples are like, <laughs> Jesus, we've been walking for you three, with you three years. We're pretty amazing. At least we think we are. So uh, just hypothetically, who is the greatest? <laughs> and Jesus says, it's not you. <laughs> you. You've got it all wrong. You, 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 it's not you. <coughs> so he goes at, and it's, uh, but it's, he, he does what he always does. It's an invitation back. He says, you have to turn. You, you are setting, you're, you're seeing what it means to be great wrong. Because Jesus is not telling him not to be great. And this is, I think is a very, some, some communistic, uh, socialistic interpretations of the Bible have that you're not supposed to be great because we're all equal, we all have to have the same prizes and everybody gets a trophy. No, if you lose, you lose. No, uh, sorry, that's from sports. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not, don't be great. Don't be, he does not say, don't be great. He says, be great. It looks different. Being great is not that you're proud and arrogant. Being great is that you're humble. You become everyone's servant. That is what it means to be great. And yeah, you take that to slide, to Matthew 20 slide, but he just, we're going to get there a little later. This is what Jesus says about being great. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be a slave. Even as the Son of Man came to not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve and give his ransom, his life a ransom of many. So this is what it means to be the greatest. He is the greatest. This is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to get to that as well uh, later. But this is what it means to be great. So Jesus is not saying you can't be great. You should strive to be great. What does that look like, Jesus? Do I get a big card? No, you can be a slave of everyone. Now the biggest problem with being a slave, and I work in the cleaning industry also, is when people treat you as one. Like I'm humble, you know, I'm humble all the time until somebody takes me for granted and abuses me. <laughs> then I'm not humble anymore. <laughs> then I'm arrogant and proud and be like, what are you guys doing? And it's like, you're just doing your work. Yeah, yeah, but you could be nicer. And, you know, the biggest problem being a slave and a servant of everyone is when they take you for granted and treat you like one. That reveals at least where my heart is. Maybe I am way more arrogant and proud than I think I am. Can you take the quote slide? Uh, the um, that one, next one. So I was in there, I was in there, you know, also Joseph did in the beginning, you know, you have to be, we have to become like children, we have to come to, uh, come to God as children, and all that is true. 
We see that so many places. We have, because the Hebrew says, we can come boldly before the throne of God, the creator of all the universe, because he's made a way for us. And uh, <laughs> I couldn't find the quote. I was looking and looking, I couldn't find it. Uh, Luther has this quote about children, I think it's Luther, so than somebody else. He's like, well, yes, Lord, you're saying we should be like children, but should we act like imbeciles? <laughs> he was commenting on how some children act like crazy. But, of course, none of those things are or what this is looks like. Now the main point here, as this commentator says, is it's about position. Children had no standing. They were the lowest in society. Couldn't do anything, they were totally dependent on everybody else. They were powerless. So Jesus is saying, hey, you accept the lowest rank. That's what we're called. And they're asked to do instead of looking to be the most powerful. Become like a child that has no standing. you know it yourself well depending our culture is a little bit different sometimes it seems like children have better standing than their parents but that, but in this in this culture in this culture this was a clear hierarchical structure where it was like that and I think from our generation we have been we have, I'm so old that I've grown up with that it was very clear especially among my grandparents and other people there was a lot. There was a clear hierarchical structure of what, of who was worth something. I have a big part that said skips. Skip this. Okay, I'll skip it. I'll skip it. So then this is what Jesus is going. He, he, again, he takes his disciples on this journey. They, they come to Jesus, they have these questions about power structures, about who's going to rule, who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus, he twists it around and puts a chill, and you have to become a child who has no standing. That's what you're being asked to do. I have exposed your pride and your arrogance. Now you need to turn so you can become great, because you're not great at the moment. You're fighting among yourselves, and this is and this is not over. This is going to continue. John's John and James's mother is also going to come and request this soon. I think in verse four, as I was studying, verse four just kept popping out, and I'm also going to end with the verse four. Is Jesus talking about himself? Whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When they ask who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, is it not the king? Is it not the one who did humble himself? The one who was always with God. The one who is all-powerful. Always worshipped by angels empties himself and comes into the world talk about 
humbling yourself. Humbling yourself. So you come into the world you created that you suffer along with everybody else in a sinful, broken world, being rejected by your own, by conquering this life, by not sinning, but instead conquering Satan, sin, and death. And our pain, guilt, and shame by dying on the cross. Jesus, the king. He's the example to follow. And I know, of course, it's easy for me because I know that's what's going to happen, but they don't know this yet, the disciples. But I'm just looking at four and being like, wow, wow, maybe he's really talking about himself and asking us and the disciples to follow that example, to be that humble. I mean, who can even fathom that? You have all power in the world and you give it up. We look in five, and Jesus, he gives us this beautiful, amazing mission. And a choice, or not a choice, but a chance to encounter him every day in how we encounter other people. And he says about this little child, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So where the disciples were like, we're kind of pretty awesome-ish, and he tells them to turn around and become like a little child. And now Jesus says, well, you know what? If you can live a life where when you see someone, even someone of low estate or no estate, and you receive them in my name, you receive me. You encounter me. So it gives us something to live for every day. Every time we encounter someone, even of, well, we say, oh man, they don't have much status, these people. But if our hearts are soft and humble, we might just receive Jesus as we encounter one another and even the lowest people. Now that gives us a mission every day. You know, there's something every day. Jesus also he has already talked a little bit about this. He talks about how if you give a cup of water to someone, nobody's gonna, they're going to get that reward and so on. And he's going to talk about this later on when he's talking about judgment. And pe- the people are going to be like, we never, we never saw you thirsty. We never saw you hungry. He says, what you did to one of the least of these, you have done to me. So remember that our, our lives actually do matter. And we can actually encounter Jesus this is what he's saying in the way we encounter other people the question is like do I do that do we do that are we just a little bit busy with what we're doing and kind of forget that that's why we're here to bring Jesus to people 
and then we will meet him. Are you even aware that you can experience Jesus in that way? If not, you know now. Now everything's going really well. Now. But now Jesus turns it up. <laughs> and this is chapter 18 and we're going to talk about it next time also. It's about how to relate to one another. And how do we, how are we together as a fellowship? Well, we're going to talk about church discipline next time. We're going to talk about how do we interact together. And now we're going to talk about sin. And we're going to talk about Jesus is not a big fan of sin. He gives very strong warning, just like we have read. He calls out his woes. First he says, temptation will happen. But it would be a lot better if it doesn't come from you. And then he he comes and he references the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about the mutilation of ourselves. And this is, this is the extreme pictures that he's painting. It is way better for us, Jesus says, that we cut off the arm that sins because it's better to go into life maimed than it is into a hell of fire full. And he doubles it down and says it twice. Just so we're not in doubt. And then in the middle, he says, that part I've lost I've lost my way oh there six five and six I've got, got ahead of myself so he says well, this is um, how amazing is that you can meet me but you know what's going to happen it will be better for you if if you if you instead cause these little of humble estate the children to sin it's better for you that you have a huge stone tie it around your neck and then be thrown in the water and drowned I was just thinking about oh that's what happens in movies with people that cross the mafia or something and even for these people it's also super scary because they are very afraid of the water and drowning is a horrible way to die so it's better for us it would be better for him. So it's better for us to die a painful, horrible death with a big stone than it is for us to cause other people to sin. Now, I don't know about you, and I don't know why I changed it into an English accent there, but...
When we come to these passages where Jesus talks like this, and he talks about hell twice afterwards, he talks about it's better for us to die a horrible death, painful death of our lungs exploding and us drowning. And he's saying that's better than cause other people to sin. And we have to sit in that just a little bit, at least, to consider, okay, all right, Jesus, so far you have you've gone at the disciples' arrogant hearts because they were seeking their own, having a higher view of themselves, and and now you are confronting me with how am I actually living my life? And how does my life actually impact others? Do I cause people to sin? Does my lifestyle cause other people to sin? There's this passage in, uh, in, in, in the end of Romans 1 where, where Paul writes, they don't only just sin, they also encourage other people to sin. Is that us or is that you? Is that me? And I was even more challenged when I was reading some of the people and they that are commentators and say this is not just and it's and we're gonna see that as we go through the chapter. This is not only about what we say. This is how our lifestyle of our attitudes, the way we carry ourselves is that is the way we live our lives leading people away from Jesus? more than to Jesus he just said if you bring me out to Jesus you experience they will experience Jesus and you will experience me if you're the opposite it's better for you to drown horribly than it is to live a life where you are as he calls as he says to the Pharisees at some point you you go over land and sea and you make a proselyte which you can make a conversion and you make him twice as ready for hell That's not us, is it? Do we take sin and causing other people to stumble? The word here is uh, translated into don't be a stumbling block. Don't be somebody who uh, trips other people up. Don't be when they see you, somebody they fall over. So our life is our life something that builds other people up and they can meet Jesus? Are we a block in the road where people fall on them and they fall away from Jesus? take sin that seriously do we take our lives that seriously did the disciples and I know like we live in a we live in a culture where sin is uh, where sin is kind of encouraged you know if you can make some people you know if you can make money if you can make if you can have power if you can get your post if you get your point across point across people don't really care if you sin it's like eh, it's, all, it's all the people's problems you know Jesus is very strongly disagree about that 
And he says we can live as a blessing or we can live as a curse. And both of them has strong consequences. See, that's why he paints these horrible pictures of the drowning and of the horrible burning. This is a strong one to be very humble, to trust God. And live a life that where we don't lead other people to sin. In all our lives, church, not just church, workplaces, education, home. We're called to be salt and light, not a stumbling block for people. But how is our attitude towards this life and other people? What does other people see when they look at us? Are we constantly negative? Like Jesus is still dead? Are we only pointing to the wrong things in culture? Are we cutting people cutting people with our words and attitudes? Will the way we live or carry ourselves cause people to stumble? Oh, the flip side. Are we fake positive? Like we lie. We say everything's great all the time. Oh, bless the Lord. Everything is great. And everything's horrible. Are we real enough? that people are attracted to who Jesus is as we live. Do we live lives where we really believe that Jesus has won? Are we mocked by that great hope and joy that the Holy Spirit fans into flame with us? Actually, I have to calm myself down, but That's why I got so excited when we were sharing our testimonies. Because that's what it's about. It's about Jesus transforming our lives. And so we want to live those lives. And not be in stumbling blocks, but lives where people see what Jesus has done in us. That they might experience who Jesus is. But Jesus continues to address this and then he talks about how it is horrible for the people who sin comes through. And then again, we talk about our culture. You know these things because you're in this culture, but maybe just make sure we're not being blinded. The, in this culture, pride is being... Pride is is, is something... Oh, you should, you have to tell your, your children they should be prideful. You should be proud of your accomplishments. You should be proud in yourself. You are worth it. Follow your heart. There's an extreme over-sexualization of everything. In film and art, in oil consumption, greed, greed sells. Greed and fears, uh, greed and fear sells. It gets the most clicks. Companies encourage people to sin. Some, some even have sin in their name. And you say, but woe to that. And Jesus comes into what we what I got ahead and talked about. It's better you cut those members off. And like, yeah, I've talked about all those things. We have to believe just just like Jesus just like Jesus, just Joseph said in the beginning, somehow sometimes we have a wrong view and a too small view of who God is. He is all of it and more. He is the loving father, he is the judge judge. He is the creator of all things and he still knows you so intimately. 
It's the whole thing. It's not one thing. Jesus is the same. Because people are like a culture that has just promoted all the sin was say, yeah, but Jesus, if he loves everyone, you know, there's no problem. You know, he loves me. He, you know, I have to be careful I don't go all crazy. But then people are like, yes, he loves me so much, so he will give me my sin. No, he does not, because that's just what he's talking about here. That he doesn't. He loves you enough to take away your sin, not to give it to you. And it's clear from this passage, he's not kidding. If it's something about me drowning a horrible death, having our arms and cutting our arms and legs off so we don't go and get burned on a dump, then this is important. And Jesus does not come to earth to die for our sin if it is not this horrible. We also know from the, or we know from, well, maybe you weren't here, don't go home and cut off your arms and legs and gouge out your eyes. Why? Because it's not going to change your behavior. Because the behavior is in who you are. And that's what needs to change. It's the heart and mind that needs to change. You You can cut off all your legs and your arms and your eyes you can still have a depraved mind that curses God and other people. So don't go home and do that. No, instead run to Jesus and experience who he is. Like experience the severity and the kindness of God. So we're going to come to the kindness in a little bit. But this is the severity of God and the severity of sin is that this is not something we should even play with. It needs to be put to death in us. We can't have things where where we excuse it or we manage it or something. It needs to be put to death when it sticks its nasty head out. And if you have good friends that love you, they will tell you when it happens. And you will say, I am sorry. Can you forgive me? And they will speak the gospel over you and say yes and help you kill this. So when we have these great warnings in the, in the Bible, most people are uncomfortable with them so they don't want to sit in them. Now I made you sit in, for, sit, in it for, sit in it for 20 minutes or something like that. Why? Because you have to feel it so you can see the huge relief and the salvation. How good that is. And so I, that's why it's so important to have the whole gospel. Not just like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Jesus loves everyone. Yeah, what did he do to show that? people will say, oh yeah, God is evil. He wants to kill people and send them to hell. And that is probably the most prominent objection to God. He's like, oh, he's evil. He wants to sell people to hell. Well, not really. 
as Jesus, he explains. This is the consequences of rebellion against God and making other people to sin. But let's look at what the Father is also like. This story makes sense if you are a shepherd. I don't understand it, and mathematically it doesn't make sense, but I think maybe they have advantages over me here. So Jesus uses this story. He talks about a hundred sheep. Man has a hundred sheep. It's always like a hundred. I don't know. That's probably a good... One of them stray away. Can talk about all sorts of things. Why does it stray away? It should stay with the others. And maybe it's maybe it's a rebellious sheep. And then the shepherd goes after the one, and that's where the math problem for me comes up. Okay, so in business, wouldn't it be better to stay with the ninety-nine and just let the one? You know, you win some, you lose some. But that's not what the shepherd does here. And it seems like they know this. Jesus is telling the story so that. So it seems like the disciples knows that the shepherd's going to go after the one. So somehow the 99 then keeps themselves safe and the shepherd searches after the lost one. And then what, what do we see here? Then we see... Um, and if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99. And I was like, well, how can that make sense? You know, this 99, aren't they more valuable than the one? That's not how, apparently, math, God's not good at math. No, of course, there's nothing to do with that. But there's something about the value of each person. So framing God as like, oh, God wants to let everybody help. No, it's not, that's not true, because that's what Jesus says here. And he shows the heart of the Father, saying, no, he goes after each little one. And that's why he says, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus starts with the disciples, telling them they have a too high view of themselves, that need to repent and become like some, you know, some little children who has no status. Then he tells them about, you have to be careful that you're not living this lifestyle where you sin and make all people stumble. Because right now you're being arrogant and proud. Because it's horrible to fall into damnation. And then he completes it by saying, But my father, the shepherd, he rejoices over every, everyone. And he is not. He is not the one who rejoices when people are judged. So we see the kindness and severity of God. We see how Jesus invites the disciples in just like he does with us. And he says, this is serious. And my God is, and my Father in heaven is after each one. Will you humble yourself and respond? Will you look at your life and what, when Jesus has died and resurrected and lived, Will you live like I did, humbly? And then we come back to chapter in chapter four, like verse four. 
God shows his love for us and how he is willing to go after the one, each of us, so much that he steps out of heaven to come after the one that has strayed away. The children of wrath so that we become children of God. How? Because God in Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, the King, the Messiah, he humbles himself and becomes the lowest of low to serve us. And he's asking us to walk in the way that we saw, saw him walk. A beautiful example is that we will see that in the disciples. After Pentecost, when they get the power of the Holy Spirit, they will start living these lives. So it's an invitation for us to do the same. Heaven Father, we thank you for this time. Your greatness, your kindness, your generosity, your severity, your holiness. Lord, I ask for our hearts and minds that we can we can comprehend and get to understand you more and more as we press in to understand you better and Lord I ask that you help us to humble ourselves have a right uh, that we will have a right view of who you made us to be and we are humbling ourselves under you so you're the one that leading and guiding us and we are not the one taking a view of how we can judge you and how you should be doing things better but we are humbling ourselves to be obedient and our Lord, I ask for all of us that we would just look at our lives and say, like, how is my attitudes, how is, how is my life, is my life really marked by the joy of who you are? That you are alive, Jesus. You conquered Satan's sin and death and you rose again and you're coming back. Do I have my hope and joy in that? Or have I been drugged down in the mud and just frustrated about what the state of the world looks like? Lord, help us to have joy that surpasses what happens in this world because you have overcome the world so we ask for that Lord Jesus I ask as we are coming to remember what you've done there through your life death and resurrection your spilled blood and your body broken I, I, I ask that we will lay these things down if they need the things that need to be laid down we we'll lay them down and you will take them away we'll humble ourselves and come with great joy to celebrate who you are and what you've done. I pray you would take this time also as an offering and we pray in your your holy name. Amen.